Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Kelly. And this is our roundup of what's been going on in August on the blog site. And we'll be going through quite a few posts. There's a lot of evidence-based medicine this month. Lots to talk about, not just COVID, so plenty to get on with. But uh, Simon, you've been having a, a pleasant summer? Um, well, it's been interesting. I've not been on holiday for some time, but I've managed to get away from the lakes for a week. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, what we've talked about before, Ian, isn't it? It's one of those times which is one of the most... It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Fantastic for intellectual curiosity and new science and seeing things happen in front of our eyes and terrible for the patients affected and for many of our plans for the summer. So, yes, time to you. Yeah, very good. We had a busy induction, lots of new doctors, and we did use the lesson plans from St. Emlyn's, which I will bang on about forever. And I think they worked well. And we'll be adding to those. So really interested to hear from people if you've used those. They will be up and be added to. They're there for you. And they are useful even if it's not as part of a lesson. Just if you want to go and do a topic yourself, have a look and use those. Lots of people coming into the department. There's an air of keenness, just this worry about the second wave. But what will be will be and we'll see how we manage that when it comes. Yeah, and I've heard some really good feedback on the lesson plans on Twitter from a number of different places using them around the country. I think the latest ones on chest x-rays, which seem to have gone down really well. Yep. So we're trying to grab people from all over. That's Lisa Shannon, who's up in Barnsley and made contact through Twitter and volunteered to do one on chest x-rays and hopefully might, if we can persuade her, do some other things, maybe even a CT brain one in the future. I'm just about to finish one off on Lyme disease, which uh, living near the New Forest is a hot topic, but a topic for all of us. So there'll be all sorts on there. Keep an eye on it. So on to the month's posts. There's been quite a bit of stuff going on. And Simon, why don't we just group them together a bit rather than going in date order? Should we start off with everybody's favourite and hot topic, coronavirus? There's been quite a few journal clubs that have talked about the recent evidence. It seems like it's always hard. Each month, there's more to catch up with. So the first one was about post-exposure prophylaxis with hydroxychloroquine and whether it works. Well, basically, it doesn't appear to do so. So this was an RCT done in the US and and in Canada, um, looking at 821 asymptomatic participants who'd had some form of exposure to coronavirus, either wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And basically, they gave uh, half of these people hydroxychloroquine and, and worked out whether or not it affected their likelihood of catching the disease. And unfortunately, it didn't. Um, I mean, I would love that hydroxychloroquine would work. And there's been lots and lots of um, effort putting into trying to find out whether it does, but it doesn't. And I think this speaks to the concept, which I'm kind of coming around to, lots of other people have said it, is that there's this two phases of COVID, isn't there? There's the sort of the antiviral approach that we try and combat the virus. And that doesn't seem to work. We haven't got any therapies that really make a difference there, really, in terms of outcomes. And then we've got the other idea that we're modulating the immune response to it. So things like dexamethasone, which has been shown to have an effect. And I'm getting less and less excited about the antivirals. I'm not sure that's where we're going to have the big wins in terms of mortality. I think it is going to be in immunomodulatory therapies. There was another excellent director's cut from Charlie Reynard. Now, the journal clubs that we had that we did as podcasts were hugely successful during the height of COVID. But Charlie has kept going with these director's cuts, which is really a, a written version. And this one came from Leicester, where they've put together all they could find on the most recent COVID-19 publications. It does feel a little bit like, even though lots of places still got coronavirus going on, the initial thrust of publications, publications, publications has died down. But that may just be my awareness of it. There's probably lots going on in the background. Were there any highlights here that we need to check out that might change our practice? 
Um, yes, so I would recommend you go and have a look at these. They're very little sort of tight summaries, and they're based around the concept that we've been running with the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, the top five papers which go out to all members and fellows every week. If you don't get access to those, then try and find somebody who does. You can see them on the ARCHEM website as well. This is sort of an expanded version of that, um, which gives micro-summaries of key papers. Number one, aerosol spread can occur from talking, in fact. You have to be very close to people, but just talking can create aerosols. So we often talk about aerosol generating procedures in the ED as being dangerous. And this is an AGP and that's not an AGP. Well, that's bonkers, really. There's degrees of aerosol generation. There are some things which create lots of aerosol and there's some things which create a small amount of aerosol. And I think, again, we need to think about this as a spectrum rather than as a black and white issue. So nice paper by Fennelly on that that gets into that sort of concept. There's a paper from Pagano that signals that CPAP might improve short-term outcomes. So if you put um, people onto CPAP, it uh, can improve their um, oxygenation and their functionality. I think you probably knew that, but it's good to see some evidence. Deliger et al. highlighted that most COVID-19 associated surgical complications happen quite late at about 19 days. So there is this group of patients who end up in hospital for quite a long period of time and they go on to develop all sorts of weird sort of complications. You know, it's not just a respiratory medical thing, it's affecting other specialities as well. And Mitrani et al. Um, look at the sort of the economic and the socioeconomic in- impact. I think we're starting to feel that now, but I think the implications of this pandemic are going to be enormous and not felt equally um, both between countries and also within elements of society. So really, we're going to feel this for five to a decade, I suspect, um, looking at the data that's coming out now. Um, Moore's et al. Um, is recommending uh, VTE prophylaxis. I think we know that already, but we don't know the doses and we don't know exactly who the very high risk patients are, about how much anticoagulation they should get. So that's still a ripe area for in, uh, in interest. And it's not in this paper, but you may be interested to know that things like the recovery trial, which is a big platform adaptive trial running in the UK, are going to start probably looking at different types of thromboprophylaxis in admitted patients. That's going to be really interesting to find out because there's a huge amount of opinion out there and most of it's based on NAFOR. Song et al. found that a quarter of staff have got depressive symptoms, so please look after your colleagues. And I think particularly going into the second wave, we had this conversation this morning with colleagues that in phase one, it, it was you know fighting in the trenches and everybody was up for it, but people now are knackered and to some degree burnt out. I'm not sure that we can psychologically manage the second wave in the same way did, did the first. That's a real challenge. I think we really need to think hard about that. And then lastly, Woodford et al. demonstrated, not unexpectedly, I think, that it's the most vulnerable groups in society who are most likely to catch COVID-19 and also to suffer the poor quality sequelae. There are certain parts of society who are getting it much worse. So what we're really getting there is evidence that's telling us the things that I guess intuitively we probably knew. But that's important, isn't it? The, the evidence is now catching up with some of the ideas we've had over the... Well, it's been, a, it's been a while now, hasn't it? February, January time, it's eight, nine months. But it's great to have Charlie putting those together. Uh, and thanks again to the team at Leicester for letting us publish that. I think the stuff that's been put out through Arkem and, and Charlie and St. Emelin and stuff has been absolutely fantastic. You, you did mention about the the change in the number of publications. And one of my other hats is working with EMJ. I think what we're seeing now is there was that massive initial flood of of really experiential narrative type papers. You know, this is happening. This is how it feels. This is what's going on now. What we're doing now is seeing a change to papers which have actually got data in them. And they are taking a little bit longer to put together. But I think the quality of the science 
and our ability to use the data that's coming out now there with some analysis, which is often, you know, in the best cases, multi-site um, international papers. We, we, we're very much starting to refine what we're doing. I think that means we'll see fewer papers, but better quality. Oh, and just as an aside, I did ask about journals um, which are not EM journals. You know, did they see an increase in the number of papers submitted? And the answer is yes. Now, I might postulate that an awful lot of people may have had some extra time to complete their papers, but it does seem that there's been a flurry in across all journals in all specialties. Long may that continue. So there's other things going on in the world of evidence-based medicine, that not just coronavirus. And a hot topic for a while now has been about how we can improve outcomes in sepsis and whether or not this vitamin C, thiamine, steroids cocktail will work or not work. And there's been lots of controversy about this. Simon, I know you've had good conversations at conferences over Twitter about these things. Where do you sit now after this randomized controlled trial? This is another RCT looking at this combination of thiamine, vitamin C and steroids in patients with sepsis. And I think you're right, Ian, that there was a big kerfuffle about this um, when Paul Marek originally came out with some really quite profound claims that this was the cure for sepsis and that if you give this, people won't die. And that's led to a number of different trials, um, so the vitamins trial, the ACTS trial, a whole bunch of them that have gone out to look at this in a, from an RCT perspective, because Marek's original work was a before and after study, and we know that they've got in, you know, massive inherent biases in them. What they've done in this study is they've looked at it in ICU. Patients in the US, they had 205 patients, not big numbers as it happens, and they looked at uh, giving the cocktail or not giving the cocktail. In essence, what they found is it doesn't seem to make a huge amount of difference in patients with septic shock. That was the patient group of patients who were most interested in, isn't it? The most sick patients. It's yet another nail in the coffin of this idea. But those people might come back to us and say, well, actually, in this study, they didn't give the therapy very early, which they didn't. And Marek's always said, you've got to give this at the front door, really beginning it in the ED to make a difference. And also that the, the outcomes here about changing SOFA scores aren't the same as looking at long-term morbidity and mortality data. Although this is a nail in the coffin, I think the lid is definitely still ajar there for some people. At the moment, I don't think you should be giving this sort of therapy outside of a randomised controlled trial. And that really rounds up the Journal Club style post we've had from the blog this month. We've had another excellent contribution from Gareth Roberts about GBL overdose. I have to admit that in my area, in my part of the country, we don't see an awful lot of this particular or these type of overdoses. But I'm sure that in Manchester, I'm, I know you get more of this. And it varies enormously. In, and because it's so closely linked to um, behaviour, um, so it's much more common around things like Pride Festival in Manchester, when more people are out and more people are taking drugs in the city. This is just a fact, not a judgment. And so on those weekends, we'll see many in an evening, many, many, many patients over the, over the course of a weekend. At other times of year, we may see very few, perhaps only one every couple of weeks. It's incredibly variable. But certainly when we come up to um, big festivals and stuff like that, we can see large numbers coming through. And we have a particular focus on teaching education and, and practice at those times. And what would your take home messages be? We've got the blog post there that listeners can obviously go and have a look at. But from the shop floor, when you get a patient in who you suspect has taken one of these overdoses. What's your method of managing that in the emergency department? I guess it's a spectrum of of overdose between somebody who's barely conscious and somebody who's more with it. 
Well, actually, that's one of the peculiarities of this particular drug is that they're often within the same patient within relatively short periods of time. They can go from unconscious to conscious to unconscious. It's very, very variable, often because there's a whole combination of different drugs on board. Um, GBL, GHB, often used in combination with other drugs like MCAT um, and ketamine in terms of the chemsex scene. So all sorts of things can be going on. You're often looking at polypharmacy, which, as you know, makes life very difficult. I mean, in essence, the, the treatment of this, as for many toxicological conditions, is supportive. The, the key issue for us is around whether or not to intubate these patients. And there are trials out there that suggest that you can just observe them. Well, you can, but you have to stay lucky for a long period of time. And GBL is quite a nasty drug if you aspirate it. So our policy is that we would treat these along fairly standard means. So if we, if we consider the airway risk, we will intubate these patients and put them on ITU. Um, overnight. So that, that, that's the key thing in these. It's, it's about that supportive management of their ABCs. But the other thing I want to sort of mention in this post, and I think it's very important, is that I think the attitude to people who take GBL and other drugs like this is not always as good as it should be. And that we can, unfortunately, be a bit judgmental about them and not think deeply enough about what might happen. And certainly with GBL, there is a distinct possibility, and there's, there's evidence, as, as Gareth talks about, that people may well have been sexually assaulted um, or had things done to them whilst under whilst they're comatose, um, which they didn't consent to. And I think we do need to think about this in all populations as potential date rape drugs and as drugs which may have facilitated sexual assault. And I think those aspects of, of looking after the patient should not be overlooked. And we shouldn't just consider this to be a side effect of, of, of a decision about them taking drugs on that particular night out. I think we need to look a little bit more deeply, perhaps as we would if it was a young girl. We still need to think about it in the same way as if we see a young male or a male of any age or a female of any age. And I should admit, well, I, I'm sure people have met me or listened to this I'm not very good at this sort of stuff, as in I, I haven't lived a life. I'm, I'm very straight. I'm very boring. I'm not really much fun at all. And chemsex as a term is something relatively new to me. We have got a post on that that Janos has written. And this is, a for some of us, a, a world that I don't really know and I don't really understand. And to be able to read about that, because we get patients from all walks of life who live all sorts of lifestyles. We need to understand that and try not to be judgmental about that or make decisions based on our own prejudices as I say the only way I can learn about this is by reading from people who are experts and also talking to people who take part in in activities that are really not common to me but the emergency department I feel more and more is not a place where you can be judgmental of people in fact the times I see people sort of that you, well, you've heard me talk about frequent flyers before and, and all of that sort of stuff. I, I'm less and less comfortable with that. And really, we need to just treat every patient on their merits and try and understand how it is they ended up with us. Because it's not always a choice, really, is it, to turn up in an emergency department? No, and I think there's, although we see a lot of toxicology in, in a whole variety of different groups in, in my practice, I've no doubt that there'll be issues um, in Southampton, Ian, and they may not be as overt and they may not be as frequent, but there will be issues going on. And I think one of the things I would ask people to do is to maintain an open mind and to look for these things and to consider what's happened, what are the circumstances. Um, is this just a, an unfortunate accident of, of somebody who's taken um, the wrong dose or whatever, or is there something else going on? 
Lots to think about. The final post we should have a chat about is is a bit unusual for St. Emeline's because we don't normally post anonymous posts. But I know you were sent this piece of writing at some point around coronavirus kicking off or before then. And we, we held back on it. And it's not relating to coronavirus particularly, but it seemed to be it seemed to strike a chord with the Twitter Twitter readers. And it really has had a lot of views. It was entitled Look at What They Make You Give. And it was one individual's experience of being a clinical lead or clinical director of an emergency department. And I think there's some messages in there that are really important for all of us, whether you're a clinician or a manager or somebody who's married to a clinician or a manager. There's all sorts of things that perhaps we need to think a bit more about. I, I thought it was an excellent piece, actually. And um, it did, as you know, create quite a bit of a debate amongst the St. Emmons team about whether we should publish this and how we should publish this. We published it. And you're absolutely right. It's been incredibly well received, not just on social media, but I do know that there are um, groups of clinical directors, both in emergency medicine and in other specialties, where this has been shared and commented on. And although we talk about this as being one individual's experience, I think it's not, clearly, um, judging from what's been said. Um, I think these, there's a lot of common themes in here about the, the duality of being a clinical director in a stressed service, and all our services are stressed, where you're having to serve so many different masters. You're, you're having to have one face to talk to these group of people and then another face to talk to this group of people, and that the burden and the stresses keep piling on. And there's relatively little support for what is an incredibly complex role in most circumstances, I can see. You know, if you look around the country, and I'm sure there'll be people who are listening to this who will know individuals who have gone into leadership roles um, with enthusiasm, with gusto, with, you know, great ideas. And the system has, has to some extent, ground them down. It really is quite an eye-opener. And as you say, some of the responses we got from on Twitter were that this could have been me, or do you know what, this was me, or gosh, thank heavens, I'm not alone. So do have a read of it if you've not read it already. There's lots in there. I think there's something has got to change about how clinical managers and those who are put in these roles are supported. One person did rather eloquently write, you wouldn't expect a manager to go in and perform as a doctor. So why do we expect doctors to be able to go and perform as managers? And I think there's something about clinical managers where we need to say, I need some support here. I need some skills. I need some aids to get me through this so that I can know how best to manage this and not take it on myself. Most physicians are hugely driven, want to make a difference. And we have this target and soon to everyone says, oh, it's going to be great because the target's changing or going. It's just going to change into a different beast. You can be judged on all of that very personally. And if you make a success of it, then, well, that's fabulous. And you are adored and lauded and loved. And if you don't, well, you can end up sitting in the corner watching television, drinking red wine, it seems. So be careful if this is you and seek some help and have a read of that blog post. Yeah. And if it's not you, if you're not in the management role, but you're just a member of a department, I think it's worthwhile reading this to understand what might be going on in that person's mind. Because I think we do need to um, ensure that we support our colleagues in these roles, but also to realise that they are sometimes left with incredible dilemmas. It's it's tough. It's tough when you're both serving the department to some extent. It will in an ideal world, the, the aims and the goals of the department and the people working in it should align very much with targets and patient care and the trust values. I think what I read in this is when those things diverge and become 
um, in conflict, that can have an incredibly difficult personal load on those individuals. That's that's how I read this sort of um, uh, this this piece. Now, in this new world, there are the world of the virtual conference, and I think it's worth us just talking about a couple of those that have have been started and, and are going. Uh, our friends at Coda, Coda Zero, which was Smack, have been doing some excellent work. And I know, Simon, you're heavily involved with the Royal College's virtual annual scientific conference, which will be coming up in the next month or so. Uh, was there anything you wanted to say about that college conference, about how it's working, how people can be a part of it, how they can join in? First thing you can do is book tickets. And um, actually, we've had lots of people booking tickets. We've got more people subtract- submitting abstracts than we would normally expect if it was a face-to-face conference. I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a real opportunity to take the technology that we know is out there and to try and put that into a conference. I think it's going to be great from a learning perspective. I think the other thing that we're really going to try and do is to still build in that sort of social interaction element. So try and do as much of it as discussion panels. Kirsten Walthall has got some fantastic ideas about getting people involved in some more social activities around the conference, which you can check out on the website, including an escape room based on emergency medicine, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, But yeah, it's a new world. It's enforced upon us. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah. So good. Archem's good. Code Zero has been great. Don't forget the Bubbles have done a fantastic job as well. So please um, go and visit them and have a look at that. We started off saying that there wasn't a huge amount this month, but it turns out we found more than enough to talk about. And we will be back next month to discuss September's and already there's some great things on the site that we can cover then. We're hoping that uh, you're getting through the end of summer. The, the new term feeling is with us. Children are back to school. There's this, well, this small spike in cases coming. Let's be hopeful that that will not peak too much and we will be able to maintain this return to our new normality. St. Emelins is there for you. And if there's anything you'd like us to talk about or cover, then do let us know. And uh, keep enjoying your emergency medicine. Take care, everyone.